And turn with me to Luke chapter 6. I've told you before that when I was in high school, I worked at a grocery store in my hometown in Tennessee. And it was actually what was called a grocery outlet. Uh, The best way to explain it is like this. It was like a thrift store for groceries, if you can imagine. Uh, We carried items that were discontinued, overstocked, and even out of date. And so it was cheaper than anywhere else in town. Because of that, our store was frequented primarily by lower-income families. Our manager told us at one time that over 70% of our transactions were paid by an EBT card, or what is more commonly known as food stamps. And when he said that, he was not happy about it. He did not have a very favorable view of poor people. And he and some of the other employers were not afraid to say it. For me, growing up in a middle-class family with a stable home and multiple vehicles, I had considerably more than our average customer at the grocery outlet. So working there was my introduction to those who lived in poverty and the way much of society views them. As a result, I learned many of the stereotypes associated with lower-income people. For example, I was told that poor people are lazy, that they're poor because they just don't want to work. If they would just get a job and work hard, they wouldn't be poor anymore because being poor is a choice, they said. I was told that poor people waste their money on alcohol and drugs. They're bad people. That's why they're poor. So you should never give cash to a person in need. I was told that poor people are leeches. They game the system, and their paycheck is actually bigger than yours because they take advantage of government handouts. They intentionally avoid work, have more kids, and stay unmarried because they want to depend on someone else. And all that money taken out of your paycheck each week is being given to them while they sit at home living the good life. Those were the stereotypes I encountered. And to be completely honest with you, Those were stereotypes I believed myself at times. Even though my own family had lived on food stamps in middle school while my dad was out of work. Now, are there lower income people who are lazy? I'm sure there are, just as there are lazy people in all economic levels. Are there people who take advantage of government welfare? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are. And are some of the people begging on the side of the road actually running a scheme or looking to get money to feed their alcohol or drug addiction? Yes, there are some. In fact, I've been scammed myself helping people who come to the church looking for assistance. But here's my point. When I adopted these ideas in my mind about lower income people, I labeled them and I placed them in a category and I looked down on them. They were of less value to me than people who had money. And that meant they were less than human. I have a feeling that I'm not the only one who's ever struggled with viewing people in that way. We do that with lots of categories of people. Race, ethnicity, education, political party, gender, age, etc., etc. We take one characteristic of a person and then we minimize their dignity and worth based on it. And as I've said throughout this series, that problem is what has led to most every injustice that's happened in our history. So how should we view people who have less than we do? 
How should we think about those who, for example, we see at the intersection with the cardboard sign? Are those who do, in fact, receive assistance from government programs or local food pantries? What about those in third world countries who lack food, clean water, and other basic needs? What does the Bible say about how Christians should think of and engage those in poverty? That's what I want us to think about today as we continue our message series on the image of God. Uh, The image of God is a doctrine introduced on the very first pages of the Bible. Uh, When God created human beings on the sixth day, he made them in his image. The people are the only part of creation given that special designation and calling. So Christians have long wrestled with, hey, what does this mean to image God? We said from the beginning that the core of the image of God is our ability to reflect God and to relate to God. As image bearers, we are like vice regents set on the earth to represent God's authority, to bring dominion over his creation. And we also are created to have a relationship with him, to glorify him with our lives. And the best example we have of the image of God is a person the Bible calls the image of God, Jesus Christ. See, because of our fall into sin, Jesus is the only man who's ever perfectly reflected God and perfectly related to God. That's because he is God. So it's through Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, that we're saved and restored. When we trust in Jesus, in that moment, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us and we begin to reflect and relate to God as he intended. Over time, we're conformed to his image, knowing that one day we will fully image him for all eternity. But this doctrine of the image of God, it's not just cool theology, okay? It's not just Bible trivia to fill our heads with. The image of God has real practical implications for every human issue we face. So understanding the Imago Dei, Seeing the Imago Dei and every person and conforming our lives to the Imago Dei enables us to tackle and answer many of the hard questions of our time. So let's look again at the image of God in Jesus Christ and how he related to this topic of the impoverished. Here's the first of three questions we're asking every week of this series. Here it is. Number one, what did Jesus teach? If you read through the Bible, one of the unmistakable themes you'll find from beginning to end is care for the poor. It's true there are times in which the Bible speaks negatively of poverty, like in Proverbs. We'll get to that. But overwhelmingly, what you'll find is is God speaking with a special care for those who are in need. And this is exactly what we see when we get to Jesus and the Gospels. Jesus doesn't just say that the poor are human beings or that they're image bearers, or that they're important for us to think about. No, he actually takes it a step further. Here's what Jesus taught, the answer to our first question. Jesus taught that the impoverished hold a unique place in God's heart. It is impossible to read the Gospels and not see Jesus' heart for the poor. It's a constant theme of his teaching and actions. Uh, Just a few examples to consider. Jesus used the poor as positive examples in his parables and teachings, like with the widow's might in Luke 21. Jesus told some with wealth to give it all away to the poor, like with the rich young ruler in Mark 10. Jesus performed miracles for those in need, like raising the widow's son in Luke 7 and healing beggars on the street. 
And when he announced his ministry in Luke chapter 4, Jesus said he came to proclaim good news to the poor. Then on the flip side, Jesus often spoke negatively of those who were rich. He accused the Pharisees of being greedy and flaunting their wealth in Matthew 23. He told parables about rich people going to hell, like the rich fool in Luke 12 and the rich man in Lazarus in Luke 16. And he said it's actually harder for a rich person to enter heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle in Matthew 19. Then in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, Jesus said it about as clear as he could. Look at Luke 6. I hope you are turned there with me. Look at verses 20 and 21. Jesus lifted up his eyes and his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And jump down to verses 24 and 25. Here's the flip side. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Jesus says it totally clear. He says, blessed are the poor. Woe to you who are rich. So let's ask the question. If Jesus loves everyone, why does it seem he plays favorites with those who have less? Is it wrong to be rich? Should we then all just renounce our possessions and take a vow of poverty? Well, no, I don't think that's quite the application from all that Jesus teaches in the Gospels. We need to look at all the examples and consider some other ones. Like, for instance, we know that Jesus did have some wealthier followers. Jesus also taught parables about the benefits of using wealth for the spread of God's kingdom. In other places in the Bible, particularly the Proverbs, God says it's good for people to work hard and make money. He even says that laziness can make someone impoverished. Uh, Proverbs 10, verse 4. It says, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. We know from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that money itself is not evil. But rather, he says, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. So no, the Bible doesn't teach that having money is bad. And that we should all just take a vow of poverty. Those who work hard, who come by their wealth honestly, and who, who generously live it out should be commended. And we shouldn't despise rich people just as we shouldn't despise poor people. But the reason Jesus gravitated toward the poor, and more often than not criticized the rich, is for two reasons. First off, Jesus was so hard on the rich because they were the ones who often preyed on the poor. We know that's still true today. Those who have often take advantage of those who have not. And that leads to all sorts of fraud and abuse. So throughout the Bible, we see God siding with the weak and the vulnerable. People like widows, orphans, lepers, and yes, the poor. God has a special concern for those who are exploited and disadvantaged. Second reason Jesus gravitated to the poor and criticized the rich is because those who were poor more often recognize their need for him, while those who are rich more often do not. That's what Jesus meant when he said it's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. Wealth can be a stumbling block to faith because it creates a false sense of independence and security. 
I think you and I see this here where we live. One of the wealthiest counties in America and in the world. People in Johnson County don't go to church and don't follow Christ because they don't see why they need to. They have everything they could ever want and need right here, and they think they're doing just fine on their own. So this, this is why we see over and over in the Bible and the Gospels God's unique care for the poor. Yes, God loves those who are wealthy. Yes, the rich need to be evangelized, often more so than the poor. And there's nothing wrong, again, with working hard, having a good job, and making a high salary. Rich or poor, what's most important is what we do with it. But there's no denying. Jesus was drawn to the poor in a special way. And it was a hallmark of his ministry to reach them and serve them so much so that he didn't just help them, but he actually became like them. That's the answer to our second question this morning. Number two, what did Jesus do? Jesus became poor. Poverty is the image given to describe Jesus' leaving of heaven and coming to the earth. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, in this verse, Paul's not talking about literal poverty and riches. He's speaking of the spiritual riches that Jesus had in heaven and how he gave all that up when he came down here to live a lowly human life and suffer and die. And he did that so that we might become spiritually rich with salvation and all its blessings. But if you look at the ministry of Jesus, he didn't just become metaphorically poor. He didn't just suffer and die as a man. But from everything we know, he suffered and died as a man with very little to his name. Think about it. Jesus was born. He was laid in a feeding trough for animals. We know his parents didn't have much because when they made their offering at the temple, they gave birds instead of livestock, which meant that was the only thing they could afford. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, a backwoods sort of town that even his own followers made fun of. He was the son of a carpenter, likely learning that trade as a young man, which was not an overly lucrative career path. One time when someone wanted to follow Jesus, he told them this in Matthew 8, 20. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, I don't think we should envision Jesus as some sort of modern-day homeless man starving on the street. Rather, the idea is that Jesus traveled throughout his ministry, rejecting the comforts he could have easily had. Think about it. He could have had the finest accommodations, the most luxurious meals and infinite wealth. He could have lived the high life as a king, but he chose not to. He chose to suffer, depend on the help of others, and live on very little. When he died, he died as a criminal with the only thing we know he had left being his clothes, which were gambled on by the soldiers. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Again, let's not take this too far and try to make Jesus out to be this best destitute beggar. But let's also don't miss the fact that Jesus could have lived a lot of different ways. He could have been an earthly king, a high-class politician, a Pharisee, a businessman. He could have at least built himself a nice little kingdom, and who would have blamed him for that? But he chose 
intentionally to live a lowly and humble life. He chose to identify himself with those who had it hard, who were outsiders. Most importantly, he chose to become poor by suffering and dying in our place. He rejected all that he deserved so that he might take on the judgment for our sin, which he did not deserve. And it's through his sacrifice on the cross that we can become spiritually rich. It's through Jesus lowering himself that we can be lifted up to heaven with him. It's through Jesus dying that we can have life. It's through Jesus giving everything away that we can have everything we need. So in light of what Jesus taught and did, here's our third and last question this morning, number three. What did Jesus command? And I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Towards the end of that chapter, we see what is, I think, the key passage on the topic of poverty. It's a parable Jesus told about the final judgment of his disciples. It's one you may be familiar with, but I don't want us to miss out on these details. It's Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Jesus said this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There are two really surprising parts to this story. The first surprising part is the basis for which Jesus judges the people. He separates them into two groups, sheep and goats. And then he speaks to each side, telling them where they're going to go for eternity and why they're going there. And what we see is that Jesus judges the people on the basis of their help of those who he calls the least of these. Those who fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited the sick and the prisoner, they get in the kingdom. Those were the neediest groups in society, and those who met their needs are welcomed in. And those who did not, are sent into eternal judgment. 
Jesus isn't saying that those or helping those in need earn someone's salvation. That would contradict everything else he said. Rather, he's saying that those who have salvation will be marked by helping those in need. In other words, a true follower of Jesus will care for the least of these. That will be an unmistakable, clearly identifiable characteristic of a Christian. And if it's not, the logical conclusion is that you are not a real believer. Don't miss how radical this is. But there's a second, even more surprising part to this story. It's how Jesus ends his message to each group of people. They're confused because they don't recall seeing Jesus in need or helping him or refusing to help him. I mean, anyone who saw Jesus in a bind surely would stop and help him. But here's what Jesus says. He says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Here's how we can sum up what Jesus is saying. Here's the answer to our third question. What did Jesus command? Jesus taught serving the impoverished is to serve him. How could Jesus say such a thing? Is he saying that whenever we see someone who's poor or sick or homeless or in jail and we go to help them, they somehow magically like turn into Jesus? No, that's, that's not quite the point. Rather, this only makes sense, I think, if we understand the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. He's the perfect, true image bearer who represents us. So when we treat other human beings as the image bearers they are, we are serving Jesus by serving them. We are honoring Jesus by honoring them. We are treating with dignity and respect someone who reflects the very image of God. Jesus intentionally identifies himself here as someone who's hungry, thirsty, naked, a stranger, sick, in prison. He's placing himself with people who have a physical need in order to elevate their value. These were the groups who were looked down upon, who were forgotten, who were dehumanized. And he's placing himself with them, really as one of them, to urge his followers to serve those people and meet their needs. So Jesus is commanding us right here. To help those who are impoverished. But let's address a question we may be asking this morning. What's the point? Why help people physically when we know their, their greatest need isn't to be fed and clothed? Their greatest need spiritual. It's Jesus. So why don't we just preach the gospel and poverty will work itself out? After all, didn't Jesus say that the poor will always be with us? You know, it's, it's my experience. Anytime there's something Christians don't want to do, we say, hey, man, let's don't get distracted by that. We just need to preach the gospel. That becomes an excuse for not talking about a topic or addressing a need. And then, of course, we don't even end up preaching the gospel either. Listen to me. Preaching the gospel does not preclude us from doing other things like serving those in need. Helping people physically is not a distraction from the gospel. It's not a distraction from doing the real spiritual stuff. This is the spiritual stuff. It's actually, according to Jesus, evidence that you really believe the gospel. If all you do is preach the gospel and you never help someone who is hungry or sick or in need, then Jesus says we can conclude you don't really know what the gospel is. 
Flip with me one chapter to Matthew 26. This is that place where Jesus says the poor will always be with us. And here's the story. A woman comes up to Jesus, pours over his head this really expensive ointment. And the disciples, they try to be, you know, those really self-righteous guys in the moment. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Can't we just take that, give this? We could have given this money to the poor. They try to shame her. And here's how Jesus responds, Matthew 26, verses 10 through 13. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. Is Jesus saying here that poverty will always be around, so don't worry about it. It's a waste of time. Is Jesus really saying that one chapter after Matthew 25? Like, is that really what we think Jesus would mean here? So help us if we ever misinterpret this verse in that way. Jesus is here. He's just dazed from death on the cross, and he's explaining that this woman's act actually served to prepare him for burial. That's the context And Jesus does say that the impoverished will always be with us. It is indeed a tragic reality of living in a fallen world that some will always be here who go without basic needs. But that's not intended to get us off the hook. Rather, Jesus wants us to see that our ultimate priority is to love and worship him. And taken alongside Matthew 25, it's clear to see that one of the ways we love and worship him is by serving those in need. Yes, people's ultimate need is to be forgiven of their sin and saved by Jesus. Yes, our greatest call is to evangelize the world and make disciples of all nations. But let me tell you, it's very hard to evangelize a starving man. It's hard to listen to the gospel when you're worried about where you and your kids will sleep tonight. It's hard to repent and believe when you're on the verge of freezing to death in the cold. Meeting physical needs is a gateway to meeting spiritual needs. Helping the least of these is a way to make the love of Jesus tangible and real to them. Preaching the gospel sometimes goes best alongside a warm meal and clean clothes and a safe place to sleep. So in light of our clear call to see those in poverty as being made in the image of God, treating them as such, and meeting their needs as if we were meeting Jesus' needs himself. What can we do? To be honest, this is where I get a bit overwhelmed when I think about the problem of poverty in the world. I mean, just, just listen to this. 719 million people. That's a little over 9% of the entire world population live on less than $2.15 a day, which is the international poverty line. Being below that is what they define as extreme poverty. Here in the U.S., our poverty line is $30,000 a year for a family of four. And we have 37.9 million or 11.6% of our population who fall below that. Internationally, 2.2 million people lack access to available and clean drinking water. 
297,000 children every year die from diseases due to poor sanitation, poor hygiene, or unsafe drinking water. 13% of the world lives with no electricity. And globally, one in nine people are hungry or undernourished. Look, while we've made significant strides globally with reducing poverty, it is still such a massive problem that it's easy to just feel helpless or to feel that, you know, what little I can do won't make much of a difference, so why would I do anything at all? What's the, what's the point? So here's my encouragement. Just do something. Don't let the size of the problem cause apathy or despair. Just do something. All of us can do something. For example, let me encourage you to find one ministry out there that you can support who's making a difference. Here at Blue Valley, we have two internationally in particular. Uh, Most of us sponsor a child at our church plant, one of the poorest parts of Brazil, through Compassion International. And many of us also, for $15 a month, support Food for His Glory, which helps to feed kids living in one of the poorest slums of India. We still have more children in both Brazil and India who need support if you haven't had a chance to do that yet. That is a simple, simple way to make a difference on somewhere on the other side of the world. Let me encourage you, start with one ministry who's making a difference internationally and just do what you can Then locally, what can we do about poverty here? You may not believe it, but we have people in our county, in our town, who fall below the poverty line. So let me encourage you. Again, start with one person. None of us can do everything, but all of us can do something. So do for one person what you wish you could do for all. We have ministries we partner with, like Mission Southside and Advice and Aid, helping people here in our own county. Some of our Ridgeview members go every month to help distribute food with Second Baptist Church right here in Olathe to people who don't have food. Let me know if you'd like to be a part of that or connect with one of those ministries. And if you get a chance, one of the best things you can do is build a relationship with someone who's in a lower economic situation than yourself. Actually get to know them. Hear their story, find out their needs, and see what difference you can make in one person, one family's life. That's something all of us can do regardless of what we have. We can help somehow. And this is something all of us are called to do as followers of Jesus. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. Would you bow your head with me in prayer?